Europe. The Economist, April 18th to April 24th, 2020. In the Europe section, Spain, a stricken and divided house, Poland's election, epidemocracy, Charlemagne on unlucky millennials, and more. Europe Spain, a house divided, a swift return to fratricidal politics as usual. Back last summer, Pedro Sanchez, Spain's socialist prime minister, said that if he agreed to a coalition government with Podemos, a far-left outfit, I wouldn't sleep at night. After another indecisive election, the fourth in four years, he formed just such a coalition, which took office in January. Weeks later, Spain was laid low by the novel coronavirus, and the novel minority coalition is struggling to cope, leaving the Prime Minister scrambling for broader support. Mr Sanchez's decision to impose a state of emergency and lockdown on March 14th, centralising command of health care and security in the national government, received widespread public and political backing. Five weeks on, the hospitals are no longer overflowing and the peak of the epidemic has passed, for now at least. The government is starting to think gingerly about how and when to get the country back to work. But the toll has been heavy. By April 16th, 18,812 people had died, according to official figures. The economy is in meltdown. 900,000 jobs were lost in March alone. Some 3.5 million workers are furloughed. And the IMF forecasts that Spain's GDP will contract by 8% this year, the second biggest fall in Europe after Italy. The government must deal with all this with a slender stock of political capital. During the lockdown, public opinion has been volatile. Approval for the government's handling of the virus fell from 64% to 39% during March, according to Metroscopia, a pollster. Much of the opposition has broken ranks. Vox, a hard-right party with 52 of the 350 seats in Congress, wants a national emergency government of technocrats. Pablo Casado, the leader of the mainstream Conservative People's Party, or PP, has accused Mr Sanchez of arrogance, incompetence and lies. This contrasts with the rallying round seen in many other European countries. Mr Sanchez has responded by calling for a pact for national reconstruction, in theory involving the opposition, regional governments, businesses and unions. This is a conscious echo of the Moncloa Pacts of 1977, a set of agreements on economic measures between government and opposition, which were a pillar of Spain's transition from dictatorship to democracy. One poll found 92% in favour of another such pact, but 79% thought it improbable. One explanation for the government's difficulties is its own shortcomings, both technical and political. It bungled an announcement on March 28th 
that the lockdown would temporarily tighten, leaving many vital details initially uncertain. It is harder to coordinate such measures in a decentralised country with powerful regional governments. Even so, Mr Sanchez's practice has been to pre-announce measures and to consult only after their implementation. That has left businesses and some regional presidents fuming. It's a government that lacks not just experience, but also deep knowledge of the state and how it works, says a former senior official. The sense of improvisation is very strong. Podemos and its leader Pablo Iglesias have added to the problems. Perhaps with some justification, he has seemed desperate to leave his ideological mark on government policy. At his instigation, the government issued a decree making sackings during the pandemic unlawful, even as it has forced many businesses to suspend trading. Mr Iglesias's hostility to the private sector and the monarchy and the Moncloa pacts arouses widespread mistrust. The government finds it hard to speak with one voice. Mr Sanchez has had to devote much time and effort to internal debate. Governments everywhere have struggled to deal with a crisis that demands swift, momentous and costly decisions. In Spain, a fragmented opposition adds to the problems. We're not starting from a blank slate, but rather from years of institutional deterioration, says Sandra Leon, a political scientist. The country's political system has not regained its balance since the last economic slump of 2008 to 2012, which fractured a stable two-party system into five and fueled separatism in Catalonia. Political competition is now not just between left and right, but within each of those two blocks, which makes it more confrontational. Take Mr Casado's position. He heads what was once the loyal opposition, but he must now also try to contain Vox. Another battleground will be over decentralisation. Kim Tora, the separatist head of the Catalan administration, has attempted to exploit the crisis to claim that independence would have provided more protection against the virus. Since he still runs nursing homes and hospitals in his region, that has cut little ice. Rather, there is evidence from polling data that in this crisis, Spaniards want the centre to take charge, as Mr Sanchez has done, argues Ms Leon. But that is inimical to the moderate and influential Basque nationalists, as well as to their Catalan counterparts. Some in the PP say that one condition for a national agreement should be the departure of Podemos from the government. Mr Sanchez has ruled that out. Although it was his route to office, he knew the tie to Podemos wouldn't work for governing, says Jorge del Palacio of King Juan Carlos University in Madrid. But he can't break the coalition without an alternative. A centrist grand coalition looks unlikely, though it is not impossible. The coming months of mass unemployment, business failures and spiralling public debt will be gruelling for Spain and for its government. The last crisis upended the country's politics in unforeseen ways. This one could yet do so too.
Europe. The Corona Bonds Row. Dutch Courage. The Netherlands takes on and ticks off the Eurozone. The Dutch Golden Age fell apart in 1672, when surrounding powers, England, France, and a pair of German principalities, teamed up to sack the Netherlands and seize its colonies. Ever since, the small country's diplomats have made it a principle never to become isolated against a united European front. Yet, as the Eurogroup, the finance ministers of the 19 countries that use the euro, planned their response to COVID-19 this month, the Netherlands found itself alone. For 36 hours, the thrifty Dutch were the sole holdouts against a deal to help afflicted countries tackle recession. On April 9th, after two teleconferences, the Eurogroup compromised. There will be a 200 billion euro, that's 215 billion dollar European Investment Bank program and a 100 billion euro fund from which governments can borrow to support unemployment benefits and salaries. For medical expenses, countries can unconditionally borrow up to 2% of their GDP from the European Stability Mechanism, or ESM, an emergency fund set up during the euro crisis of 2010-12. But the Dutch refusal to go further has made lots of Europeans angry. The target of their ire is the blunt-spoken finance minister, Wopke Hoekstra. Before the negotiations, he sententiously chided Southern Europe for failing to cut deficits to prepare for a downturn, as the Netherlands had. In fact, Italy's spending cuts were comparable to the Netherlands, but the Dutch economy grew faster. In the Eurogroup meeting, he rejected a proposal by nine countries, including France, Italy and Spain, to issue collective Eurozone debt, Eurobonds, or in this case, Corona Bonds. In this, he was joined by Austria, Finland and Germany. But on the ESM, he stood alone, insisting that countries that tapped it for non-medical spending had to agree to economic reforms. Italy and Portugal were incensed. Both have national debts of well over 100% of GDP, and neither wants its budget picked apart in the midst of a pandemic. Before the negotiations, Portugal's Prime Minister called Mr Hoekstra's criticism disgusting. Afterwards, he wondered whether it would be possible for the Eurozone to continue with all 19 members, and I am talking about the Netherlands. Yet, while Mr Hoekstra was criticised abroad, he was lauded at home. The Dutch, like the Germans, have a cultural aversion to debt, especially when shared with those they do not trust. Mr Hoekstra told a parliamentary committee that eurobonds are unacceptable because the European Union has no central authority that can force countries to reform. The euro crisis reinforced the Dutch conviction that credit without conditions is not solidarity but irresponsibility. Cynics note that the Netherlands faces elections next year and that Mr Hoekstra will be vying for the leadership of his Christian Democratic Party as well as competing against the Liberal Prime Minister, Mark Rutte. Both parties must fend off challenges from Eurosceptic outfits. Yet Mr Hoekstra's stance is popular 
because it reflects beliefs he shares with most Dutch voters. Dutch foreign policy is often deeply moralizing. Because we are wealthy, we know the truth, and we are going to tell you how to reform, says Rem Korterwerk of the Klingendal Institute, a Dutch think tank. Olaf Scholz, Germany's finance minister, may be secretly grateful for Mr. Hoekstra's stubbornness, which allows him to play the role of peacemaker. But as the response to COVID-19 evolves, other forms of collective spending will be on the table, notably at a video conference of EU leaders on April 23rd. Self-righteousness is not winning the Netherlands' many friends. Europe Poland's election Epidemocracy A presidential election threatens the rule of law. Almost unnoticed amid the COVID-19 crisis, last week the European Court of Justice, or ECJ, took a modest step towards stopping a European Union member from sliding into autocracy. Ever since it won power in 2015, Poland's Populist Law and Justice Party, or PiS, has been trying to get control of the country's courts, while independent judges appeal to the EU to block it. On April 9th, the ECJ ordered Poland to suspend immediately the disciplinary chamber of its Supreme Court, a body that can punish judges, and to freeze a new law restricting judicial independence. The European Court said these violated EU treaties guaranteeing the rule of law. The government is not giving up. A judge linked to peace had challenged the order in Poland's constitutional court, which is currently dominated by government-friendly judges. But that court has no authority in the case. The ECJ is the final arbiter of EU law. Its orders cannot be questioned on the basis of national constitutions, national law or rulings of national courts, says a European Commission spokesman. If Poland sets aside the verdict, it will be defying the court, the Commission and the structure of the EU. It is shaping up to be a fateful spring for Polish democracy. As in many European countries, a national lockdown has been in effect since mid-March to prevent the spread of COVID-19. But Poland is scheduled to hold a presidential election on May 10th. In some countries, opposition parties worry that an election might be suspended. In Poland, they are angry it is going ahead. Andrzej Duda, the peace-backed incumbent, faces five main challenges, ranging from the centre-left to the far-right. His chief rival is Margorzata Kidawa-Boinska of the centrist Civic Platform Party. Polls put Mr Duda far in the lead, but perhaps short of the 50% plus needed to win in the first round. The opposition charges that the lockdown's ban on public events makes it impossible for them to campaign. That suits Jarosław Kaczynski, PiS's leader, just fine. He wants to hold the election before disenchantment with the crisis can hurt the government's approval rating. Bills restricting abortion and sex education are moving ahead too, now that the demonstrations that stopped them in 2018 are barred. The government almost split over the public health risk of staging the election. The leader of Porozumenia, a junior coalition party, called for it to be postponed, 
Ignored, he resigned on April 6th, but his party stayed in the coalition. Later that day, Peace passed a bill to shift the entire election to postal voting. Postal unions warned that this is impossible. They would have to handle 30 million voting packages, up from 43,000 in the previous presidential election in 2015. They are also leery of the infection risk such a huge operation would pose to their workers. One group is calling for a postal strike on election day if the government goes through with it. A poll last week showed 78% of the public want the voting postponed. If the election goes ahead, low turnout and voting mishaps are expected. Another problem stems from Peace's changes to the courts. Besides the disciplinary chamber that the ECJ ordered to be suspended, the government established a chamber of extraordinary control, whose duties include certifying elections. Critics charge that it too is invalid under EU law, rendering the election illegitimate. Poland's government may evade these conflicts. The independent-minded president of the Supreme Court, long a thorn in Peace's side, finishes her term at the end of April, and Mr Duda can appoint a more sympathetic one. That could smooth any trouble over the election. As for the EU, its tools are limited. The ECJ can impose fines if Poland defies its order. Other states could make it clear that Poland will fare less well in the apportionment of pandemic recovery aid and the EU's multi-year budget. With Covid-19 on its mind, Poland may have less appetite for fights over the rule of law. Then again, so may the EU. Europe Wildlife encroaches in Italy. Rus in Urbe. The small consolations of COVID-19. A wolf slinks out of a park in Sesto Fiorentino, an industrial centre near Florence. Goslings waddle behind their mothers along deserted thoroughfares in Treviso. Fallow deer invade a golf course on Sardinia and take a dip in the clubhouse swimming pool. As Italians entered the sixth week of Europe's longest COVID-19 lockdown on April 13th, one thing they had to cheer them up was the sight of animals in spaces that humankind had temporarily abandoned. At Cagliari on Sardinia, bottlenosed dolphins have long been known to wait at the mouth of the port to play in the wake of departing motor vessels. But since the lockdown, some have entered right into the port, where they have been filmed swimming up and down under a quay, looking at the humans above. A similar phenomenon has been observed at Trieste. A non-scientist might speculate that the dolphins are thinking, why aren't you moving around in your boats any longer? says Giuseppe Bogliani, formerly a University of Pavia professor. Mr Bogliani cautions against assuming that nature is reclaiming its own. Some mammals, like foxes, may have been in the cities already, prowling undetected at night. A golden eagle spotted gliding above a main road in Milan posed a different question. Is it there because of the lockdown? Or did we just see it because of the lockdown? Not all reappearances have been welcomed. Residents in alpine areas of the province of Trento have been advised not only to stay at home, 
but to refrain from leaving out rubbish that might attract Italy's most wanted animal, a brown bear known to scientists as M49 and to the public as Papillon because of his escape last year over three electrified fences. Papillon is nicknamed after Henri Charrière, the only man to escape from the French penal colony on Devil's Island. Like the late Mr. Charrière, the bear has a substantial criminal record. It includes breaking and entering, alpine cottages and refuges, and attacks on cattle. Last year, the government of Trento issued an order for Papillon's capture. He has now been spotted heading for Veneto, which has not yet issued a warrant. Smart bear. Europe Charlemagne Unlucky Millennials Young Southern Europeans face the second crisis of their adult lives. Will it radicalise them? The year 1985 should have been a good one to be born in Europe. Elisa Zugno, now a 35-year-old copywriter who lives in Milan, was able to benefit from the tailwinds of the 1990s and early 2000s, Economies ticked along and higher education opened up. Various forms of discrimination were outlawed. History had ended. Life was good. Then, in 2008, just as Mazzugno was graduating from university, history juddered into action again with the financial crisis. The first few years of her career were familiar to any well-educated millennial in southern Europe. Rather than a share of the spoils given to globalization's supposed winners, degree-toting multilinguists, Mazzugno and her ilk were greeted with a mix of unpaid internships and low-paid work. Instead of a recovery, the financial crisis morphed into the Eurozone crisis, with renewed pain for Europe's youngsters. Unemployment shot up. Four out of every ten young Italians did not have a job in the middle of the last decade, while half of young workers in Spain were in the same boat. In contrast, even at the peak of the crisis, only 11% of young Germans were unemployed. The result? Mazzugno was 31 before she landed the first permanent contract of her working life. A few years on, after belatedly finding its feet, Mazzugno's generation now finds itself pushed to the floor once more, with the second major economic crisis of their short adult lives surrounding them. In the aftermath of the financial crisis, analysts were quick to split the world into the winners and losers of globalisation. On the one side were those furnished with education, open horizons and language skills, who were supposed to thrive in the new order. On the other were those with no such luck, stuck in careers set to be overtaken by innovation. A third category containing Southern Europe's young must be added, globalization's Pyrrhic victors. These people fulfilled the requirements of the Winners' Club, armed with both the mindset and means, even possessing a passport from the EU, the institution that most embodies 21st-century globalisation. Yet, thanks to repeated economic shocks, they have singularly failed to reap the expected benefits. All generations suffer during a crisis, but the consequences last longer for the young. Economic misery has a tendency to compound. 
Low wages now beget low wages later, and meagre pensions after that. The prospect of middle-aged drudgery beckons. For older generations, a recession is an unfortunate pothole, which most will drive over without even blowing a tire. But for Southern Europe's younger people, it is an enormous sinkhole from which it will be hard to clamber out. Youth unemployment in Spain and Italy is below its peak, but still stood at about 30% even before COVID-19 arrived in Europe. This time, for many, the crisis begins in a far worse place than it did last time. Coming of age in a crisis has longer-term political consequences. People's values tend to crystallize in their mid-twenties, points out Christian Welzel of Leuphana University of Lüneburg in Germany. When basic needs are taken care of by a growing economy, voters can focus on post-material issues. The scholarly jargon for topics like equality, environmentalism, and freedom of expression. Young people are supposed to be the vanguard of this shift away from economic concerns towards intangible ones. Values change over generations, typically becoming dominant because generations rise and fall, rather than because people change their minds en masse. Liberal attitudes towards, say, gay rights stick with people throughout their lives. Instead, millennials in Southern Europe have found themselves unceremoniously shoved down the order of priorities. In such circumstances, the economic basics trump more complex issues when it comes to politics. Those in Northern Europe can still afford to care about other topics. This split is starting to show up electorally. Europe's green parties enjoyed their best ever performance in the 2019 European Parliament elections. Nearly doubling their number of MEPs as young voters from across Northern Europe flocked to them. Spain, Italy, and Greece—about a quarter of the EU's population—boast a grand total of one green MEP. After two big crises at a formative period of their lives, a politicized and traumatized generation will need to be catered for. Emigration was an option for Southern Europe's discontented young last time round. This time, all of the EU's economies are tanking simultaneously, while Britain, a popular destination in the previous crisis, is intent on reducing immigration. There is no ripcord that Europe's afflicted young can easily pull. Apathy is another potential path. I would say 80% are just complaining and getting depressed, and 20% at least are trying to gather energy, says Mozunio of her peers. But the anger built up during the previous crisis has not receded. About two thirds of Spaniards declare themselves dissatisfied with democracy in their country. This provides fertile ground for populist parties. Points out Ignacio Herrado, an academic at University Carlos III of Madrid. People are more interested in politics, but they expect less. They trust less in government. They are more dissatisfied. In Spain, the result has been straightforward. New parties such as Vox on the right and Podemos on the radical left have flourished, with younger voters in particular constituting their core support. 
In Italy, just under half of all voters aged between 25 and 34 opted for the Northern League, a hard-right anti-immigration party, or the Five Star Movement, a more leftist populist group, at last year's European elections. Europe's mainstream parties will find it hard to win them back. A resurgence of a left-right split on economics could help these established parties, but many voters will feel that the social contract has been so badly breached that they would rather rip it up altogether. Asia The Economist, April 18th to April 24th, 2020. In the Asia section... Ethnic strife in Myanmar, guerrillas with attitude. Informal workers and COVID-19 get sick or go hungry. Banyan on in hot water and more. Asia Ethnic strife in Myanmar. Guerrillas with attitude. An insurgency with daring tactics is humiliating the army. In Rakhine and Chin states in the far west of Myanmar, bullets fly and villages burn. Dead bodies lie slumped in ditches. These clearance operations, as the Burmese government calls them, evoke those of 2017 when the army drove hundreds of thousands of Rohingyas, a Muslim ethnic group, from their villages, killing and raping many as they did so in what the UN described as genocide. Three years later, the army's sites are trained on a different ethnic group, the Rakhine. Like disgruntled members of many other minorities scattered across Myanmar's ethnic patchwork, some Rakhines are waging a war of independence against the Bama majority. Unlike the others, they are making headway. Conflict erupted last year on January 4th, Myanmar's Independence Day. Several hundred fighters from the Arakan Army, or AA, a Rakhine armed group, attacked four police posts in northern Rakhine state, killing 13 officers. Arakan is the rebels' preferred name for the state. The AA and the Tamodo, as the Burmese army is called, had skirmished occasionally since 2014, but the insurgents had never before attempted anything so bold. The government, helmed by Aung San Suu Kyi, winner of a Nobel Peace Prize, instructed the army to crush the rebels. The Tamado has since deployed 15,000 to 20,000 troops, according to Anthony Davis, a security analyst, in what he describes as an unprecedented mobilisation involving heavy artillery, airstrikes and even naval patrols. The AA has departed markedly from patterns of guerrilla warfare in Myanmar, says David Matheson, another analyst. Rather than hiding in redoubts in the jungle, it also operates in urban areas. Instead of simply taking pot shots at army patrols, it has conducted bombings and abducted hundreds of civil servants, policemen, soldiers and politicians. The Tamado, accustomed to siege warfare, is floundering in its response. Mr Matheson reckons it has suffered at least a couple of thousand casualties. Mr Davis labels the AA the most serious insurgency the Burmese military have faced since independence. 
The AA is better organised and equipped than most ethnic rebels. Its commander, Tuan Marat Nai, is educated, charismatic and young, unlike the septuagenarian leaders of most of the country's other insurgencies. The AA also commands overwhelming support from Rakhines and can pick and choose among recruits. Rakhines are rushing to enlist because they have lost faith in the political system. They say they have been neglected for decades by the central government. Rakhine is one of Myanmar's poorest states. The advent of civilian government under Ms. Suu Kyi in 2016, after many decades of military rule, only exacerbated tensions. The Arakan National Party, or AMP, which won a majority of parliamentary seats in Rakhine, believed that her party, the National League for Democracy, would let it nominate the state's chief minister. Instead, the NLD appointed one of its own. The killing of seven Rakhine protesters by the police in 2018 and the subsequent arrest of A. Maung, the ANP's chairman, further radicalised Rakhines. His imprisonment also left a vacuum into which the AA has stepped. Throw off the shackles of Burmese racism and colonialism, Mr. Tuan Murat Nai recently urged his fellow Rakhines, harking back to the long periods when Rakhine State was an independent kingdom. The rousing message is hammered home in the group's slick social media videos, featuring hale young soldiers declaring undying love for their homeland. The AA is intent on inflicting so much damage that the government will have to make concessions. Over the past six months, more than 210 government employees in Chin State, where much fighting has taken place, have resigned after being threatened by its fighters. Officials from the central government are sufficiently unsafe in Rakhine that they must seek special permission to go there and often travel with a military escort. The AA also threatens to take the fight to the Bama-inhabited regions at the heart of Myanmar. We should reciprocate, says Mr. Tuan Murat Nai. They are basically looking to destabilize the national government's activities in Rakhine State as much as they can, says Mary Callahan, a military historian, and they've succeeded. The government's efforts to hamper the AA look flailing. It has blocked mobile internet service to about one million people in Rakhine and Chin states since June, according to Human Rights Watch. On March 23, it also blocked access to several news websites that report on the conflict and designated the AA a terrorist organization. The police have since charged several journalists who interviewed Mr. Tuan Murat Nai with violating the counter-terrorism law. Rakhine civilians are also coming under fire. Amnesty International claims that the army has been shooting indiscriminately at Rakhine settlements and torturing and murdering civilians. At any rate, more than 100,000 people have been displaced by the fighting. Analysis of media reports by Nian Littit Analytica, a Burmese think tank, shows that 42 civilians have died since March 23. The Tamado risks turning a war in Rakhine into a war on the Rakhine, says Mr. Davis. He believes that doing so will only encourage Rakhine civilians to rally around the AA with greater fervor. The rebels do not have the firepower to defeat the Tamado militarily, but he is not sure that they need to. If they inflict sufficient humiliation on the Tamado, he reasons, the government may decide to retreat from the fight and seek a political settlement.
Asia. Informal workers and COVID nineteen. Get sick or go hungry. Governments are trying to help those who can't afford to stay home. Bangladesh went into lockdown on March twenty sixth, but that didn't stop Zoyrul from taking his bicycle rickshaw out onto the back streets of Dhaka, the capital, a couple of times. On his first outing, he earned just two hundred taka, or two dollars forty, less than a fifth of what he normally makes. On the second, he was caught by the police, who beat him, injuring his leg so badly he can no longer pedal his rickshaw. Since then, he's been nursing his wounds and husbanding his stores of rice. I don't know how I'm going to earn or buy food once this runs out, he says. As Asian governments impose quarantines to curb the spread of COVID-19, the continent's usually hectic streets have gone quiet. Restrictions vary, but almost everywhere the message is the same: stay home. Such measures threaten to ruin the majority of Asians. Seventy percent of workers in Asia and the Pacific do not have formal jobs with contracts, salaries, or sick leave. But instead, do things like driving rickshaws for a living, according to the Economic and Social Commission for Asia and the Pacific, or ESCAP, the UN agency for the region. In many places, there is not much of a safety net for the poor or unemployed either. Some workers feel they face a choice between getting sick and going hungry. Governments in poorer Asian countries realize there is little point declaring a lockdown. If their citizens cannot afford to abide by one, and so are trying to help, it is a daunting task. Informal workers are not in the government databases, says Hamza Malik of Escap. Identifying them is extremely challenging, according to Guy Ryder, director general of the International Labour Organization or ILO. Bureaucrats are consulting censuses or lists of those who already receive some sort of help from the state, but these often miss people and quickly go out of date. Indonesia's unified database, which contains the details of the poorest forty percent of the population, some one hundred million people, is supposed to be updated twice a year by local governments. However, two fifths of them don't have the budget or capacity to do so, reckons Vivi Yulaswati of the Planning Ministry. The pandemic makes the task of identifying the needy all the more challenging by swelling their ranks. The ILO estimates that the reduction of working hours in Asia this quarter equates to 125 million people losing their jobs. The World Bank expects the impending recession will push up to 11 million Asians below a poverty line of five dollars fifty a day. That may be optimistic. Indonesia may need to start giving handouts to an extra fifty million people, Ms. Yulaswati speculates. Given how patchy existing databases are, some countries are inviting victims of the pandemic to petition for help online. In Thailand and Kazakhstan, informal workers can apply for a one-off cash grant via a dedicated website. Nearly five million people in Kazakhstan, over a quarter of the population, have done so.
Indonesia has launched a similar program for anyone whose income has been hit by the crisis. The very poorest, however, are also the least likely to have access to a smartphone to lodge an application online. Once governments have identified whom they wish to help, they need to decide what to give them. Many Asian countries are handing out food. Bangladeshi officials have been distributing rice. Their counterparts in Myanmar have added salt, lentils and onions. The Philippines also offers sugar, coffee and canned fish and meat. But doling out food can be expensive, involving as it does the logistics of procurement, storage, warehousing and distribution, notes Ugo Gentilini of the World Bank. Cash is cheaper and faster to distribute and tends to work just as well as long as recipients have access to markets, which people in remote villages sometimes do not. So Asian countries are providing both types of aid. In India, more than 800 million people who are already eligible for subsidized food are getting extra rations, while over 300 million poor women, pensioners, farmers and construction workers are receiving small sums of cash. In addition, India has placed a three-month moratorium on loan repayments. In Sri Lanka, those leasing vehicles can defer payments for six months. Inevitably, there have been flaws and oversights. In Bangladesh, several local politicians have been arrested for funneling free rice to friends and supporters. Zoirul, the injured rickshaw driver in Dhaka, has yet to receive any. Technical glitches prevented many Kazakhs from applying for a cash grant. Protesters in Thailand say the handout scheme there is too narrow. Even when assistance does reach the poor, it is seldom enough. The sum being given to the 12 million poorest households in Pakistan is 3,000 rupees, that's $18 a month, less than a fifth of the minimum wage. Despite their limited resources, poor countries could improve public health care and expand safety nets, says Mr Malik of ESCAP. On average, developing countries in Asia spend just 3.7% of GDP to help citizens on the skids, far below the global average of 11%. The Asian Development Bank and World Bank have pledged billions of dollars to help Asian countries fight the virus. Governments should use that money, Mr Malik argues, to create a different world. Asia. COVID-19 in Japan. Deja flu. Hokkaido declares a state of emergency amid rising coronavirus cases again. Pointing to a chart showing a flattened curve, Suzuki Naomichi, the governor of Hokkaido, announced on March 18th that the region had contained its coronavirus outbreak and could therefore lift its three-week-old state of emergency. We were on defence until now, but we hope to enter a new stage, he said. Less than a month later, Mr Suzuki warned that Hokkaido was facing a crisis of a second wave. He reimposed a state of emergency on April 12th. 
The prospect of this sort of reversal haunts governments around the world. The lesson is clear, says Shibuya Kenji of King's College London. Even if you manage to control a local outbreak, once you lift the lockdown, there's a high risk of resurgence. When the virus first spread to Japan, Hokkaido was the hardest hit region. Although home to only 4% of the population, it racked up a third of the 206 confirmed cases in the country by the end of February. Mr. Suzuki declared the first state of emergency on February 28th, asking residents to restrict outings and schools to close. Locals largely complied. On March 17th, Hokkaido had its first day with no new cases in more than a month. Schools reopened and restaurants became busy again. A lot of people thought the worst was over, says Sasada Hironori of Hokkaido University. People dropped their guard. But the number of new cases began rising again, from 198 on April 7th to 296 on April 15th. Though low in absolute terms, the uptick unsettled the local government. The first wave had been linked to Chinese tourists visiting a winter festival in early February, making transmission relatively easy to trace. The second wave seems to have been caused by locals returning from Tokyo or abroad, and so is much more diffuse. Patchwork restrictions and continuing inter regional transport have undermined containment efforts, argues Mr. Shibuya. Pollsters say 95% of locals supported Mr. Suzuki's first state of emergency in February. His approval rating hit 88% in early April. The public disapproves, meanwhile, of the national government's delay in following suit. Hokkaido's new state of emergency is due to end on May 6th, in line with the one the Prime Minister Abe Shinzo declared in six prefectures in early April. That, says a bureaucrat in Hokkaido, is probably too optimistic. He should know. Asia Politics in South Korea Infectious enthusiasm. The ruling party wins a landslide victory in parliamentary elections. The young man outside the polling station was adamant. Of course, it was right to hold these elections. It's our basic right, said Kim Soo Ho, a 24 year old voter in Seoul, the capital. We're not like Europe or America, where they failed to slow the spread. There was no reason to postpone them. His fellow South Koreans, it appeared, agreed. By the time the polls closed on April 15th, 66.2% of eligible voters had cast a ballot, more than in any parliamentary election since 1992. As much of the world remained in virus induced lockdown, South Koreans donned face masks and plastic gloves to show that even in a pandemic, the journey to the polling booth is essential. The virus-defying vote brought a resounding victory for the ruling Minju Democratic Party of Moon Jae-in, the president. Minju won 180 of the 300 seats in the National Assembly, including seats won by an affiliated party it set up to contest the proportional portion of the vote 
in the country's hybrid electoral system. At the previous election, in 2016, Minju won 123 seats. United Future, the main conservative opposition party, came a distant second with 103 seats, including proportional ones from its affiliate, down from 122 seats in 2016. Huang Kyowan resigned as the Conservatives' leader after losing his constituency in central Seoul. Minor parties, which had contested the election in record numbers following the introduction of new electoral rules designed to improve their chances, barely featured. The main reason for Minju's unprecedented success seems to have been the government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Before the outbreak, Mr Moon's fortunes had been taking a turn familiar to previous South Korean presidents towards the middle of their term. His flagship policies of reigning in the country's big conglomerates and pursuing rapprochement with North Korea had flagged. But over the past few weeks, as the number of new confirmed cases of COVID-19 fell below 50 a day, Mr Moon's approval rating rose to its highest level in 18 months. With the opposition in disarray, the evident competence of South Korea's public health authorities rubbed off on the ruling party. The result bodes well for Mr Moon's agenda during the remaining two years of his term. The president is still short of the two-thirds majority required to pass his proposals for constitutional reform, but Minju's absolute majority will put an end to the parliamentary deadlock, if not the physical altercations, that have hampered lawmaking during the early stages of his term. It will allow the ruling party to push through the remaining elements of Mr Moon's promised reforms of the prosecution service, which a majority of South Koreans still regard as too powerful. It will also ease the process for appointments that are made by the President but must be approved by Parliament, such as the Prime Minister and the country's chief judges. More immediately, the government will be able to implement the economic stimulus it has proposed to contain the fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. In particular, a supplementary budget to award cash handouts to the bottom 70% of households, which the opposition has criticised, should now sail through. Still, claims that the election marks a fundamental shift in South Korean politics seem premature. The partisan divide between progressive strongholds in Seoul and the southwest and the conservative heartland in the southeast was even more pronounced than at the previous election. Many of Minju's additional seats were won back from the People's Party, a progressive outfit that split from Minju before the vote in 2016. And the result does little to ease the external difficulties with which the government will continue to have to grapple. North Korea has reverted to its typical hostile form and has conducted five sets of missile tests so far this year. And, however successful South Korea has been in managing the COVID-19 outbreak, that will not shield it from the global downturn the virus is causing. Asia Banyan In hot water, big parts of the Great Barrier Reef are dying. 
Over the Southern Hemisphere's summer, mercifully now at an end, Australia burned under a pitiless sun. Bushfires down the continent's eastern flank consumed 46 million acres of countryside, destroying homes, taking lives and driving rare animals towards extinction. To many Australians, the satellite pictures showing huge plumes of smoke drifting off to the east over the Great Barrier Reef seemed a portent of life in an age of man-made warming. It turns out that high temperatures were wreaking havoc under the water as well. This month comes news that exceptionally warm seas have led the Great Barrier Reef, the world's biggest coral system, to suffer its third mass bleaching in five years. The bush and the reef, both ravaged on a gargantuan scale, Australians almost define themselves by these two ecosystems, which once seemed boundless. Coral bleaching takes place when sea temperatures spike, causing the coral polyps that make up reefs to eject the algae that generate their food via photosynthesis. Without the pigmented algae, coral soon dies, leaving the intricate colonies a ghostly white. Reefs can recover from occasional bleachings. The fastest-growing corals regenerate in a decade or so. But mass bleachings on the Great Barrier Reef are becoming ever more frequent. The first occurred only in 1998. There have since been four more, in 2002, 2016, 2017 and now this year. They have become so common that the Bureau of Meteorology issues forecasts for them. The latest bleaching is not as severe as the worst one in 2016, when about half of the northern side of the 2,300-kilometre-long reef died. But the run of recent bleachings had already killed off relatively heat-intolerant coral species. What is striking this year, says Terry Hughes of James Cook University in Queensland, who led a recent aerial survey of the reef, is that for the first time the bleaching extended to the southern part of the reef. There, closer to the pole, waters should be cooler. Not this year. February saw the highest sea surface temperatures across the reef since monitoring began 120 years ago. The biblical rains that recently extinguished the bushfires have also helped to lower water temperatures over the reef. The rains are proof to climate change deniers who are given a platform by Rupert Murdoch's press and who are represented on the ruling coalition's backbenches that recent fires, droughts and floods are simply part of the natural cycle. They point with glee to the bush springing back to life. Yet while important habitats, such as those dominated by eucalypts, depend upon fire to regenerate, this summer's fires exceptionally destroyed temperate rainforests too. They also incinerated perhaps a third of koalas in New South Wales, hardly a run-of-the-mill dip in the population. Regarding the reef, the deniers play down the damage and insist on the ability of nature to fix nature. That is despite the cumulative effect of successive bleachings from which reefs struggle to recover. Mr Hughes says the Great Barrier Reef can no longer return to its state of even five years ago. In the coming decades, healthy coral is likely to be confined to ever smaller patches. The bushfires threw the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, off balance. 
Holidaying in Hawaii made him look out of touch, while his Liberal Party's cosy links to oil, gas, coal and iron ore interests came under closer scrutiny. Among big economies, Australia ranks behind only Saudi Arabia in terms of greenhouse gas emissions per head, and that does not count the emissions when its exports of coal and gas are consumed elsewhere. Perhaps in this respect, the new coronavirus is a tonic for Mr Morrison. His polls, hurt by the fires, have risen as Australia has escaped an epidemic on a par with Europe or America. Meanwhile, the government intones it is on course to meet and beat national commitments under the Paris Agreement on climate to cut emissions, although that is thanks in part to an accounting gimmick. As for the latest bleaching, the government has largely ignored the news. Mr Morrison's official envoy to the Great Barrier Reef, Warren Ench, a Queensland politician, points out that bleached corals are not dead corals and predicts that many will recover. Although he admits climate change is a concern, he once complained that indoctrinating youngsters to be worried about it is a form of child abuse. Most Australians care both about climate change and about the Great Barrier Reef, but not enough, alas, to call their government out over such ambivalence. China. The Economist, April 18th to April 24th, 2020. In the China section, global influence, thanking Big Brother, and Chagwan on China's self-censoring nationalists. China. Global influence. Thanking Big Brother. In the absence of American leadership, China sees a chance to boost its clout. China calls it the biggest emergency aid operation that it has mounted abroad since 1949, when the Communist Party seized power. Hardly a day goes by without news of Chinese medical supplies, from masks to ventilators, reaching grateful recipients, and of Chinese medical teams flying to foreign countries to help them fight COVID-19. Just a few weeks ago, China was by far the biggest victim of the new coronavirus, and its government was widely chided for covering up the initial outbreak. Now China is trying to paint a new picture of itself as a model for taming the disease. And as the world's savior, state media are on hand to trumpet each donation, no matter how small. On March 21st, a freight train set off from the eastern Chinese city of Yiwu, bound for Madrid, more than 13,000 kilometers away. In addition to its cargo of commercial goods, there were 110,000 masks and nearly 800 protective suits donated by a state-owned firm. They arrived more than two weeks later. The aid was worth less than $50,000, but a state media website called it a new turning point in the building of a health Silk Road. Among slogans reportedly affixed to the train was one saying, "Come on, matadors." It is hardly surprising that China is turning its attention to the plight of other countries. Its COVID-related data are of dubious quality, 
but it has clearly achieved a dramatic reduction in infections at home. Almost all of its newly reported cases involve travellers from abroad. As the world's biggest producer of much of the medical kit that is most urgently needed globally, and with its own demand for it much reduced, China is well placed to assist. Indeed, in a pandemic, to help others is also to help oneself, as a Chinese spokeswoman put it. China, however, also sees potential political rewards. A big one is enhancing its power abroad. Even before the pandemic, China had been jostling with America for global influence. Now it sees America crippled by the coronavirus, and the country's president Donald Trump fumbling in his response to the crisis and unwilling to organize an international effort to fight the disease. At a five-yearly party congress in 2017, President Xi Jinping said his country would become a global leader by mid-century in terms of international influence. That goal is evident in China's descriptions of how the world should evolve in response to COVID. In effect, it should have China even more at the centre. Another political gain that the party may hope to reap is at home. Playing up China's help for stricken countries and their desire to learn from China's success helps to deflect public criticism of the party's early response to the disease, its gagging of doctors who shared information about it online, and its failure to warn citizens despite evidence of human-to-human transmission. State media insist that China's battle against COVID-19 has shown the superiority of Chinese-style socialism, with its unique ability to marshal people and resources. Burnishing Mr. Xi's image as a figure of global stature helps to reinforce this message. Any phone call between Mr. Xi and a world leader to discuss the crisis makes the headlines of state television's nightly news. No matter how banal the publicly released content, Mr. Xi is the dependable, magnanimous statesman. No prizes for viewers who can guess who, by implication, is not such a politician. The party's propaganda about the aid effort is suffused with Mr. Xi's catchphrases. Take the health silk road that the train to Spain symbolically followed. The metaphor was first used by Mr. Xi in 2017, when China signed an agreement with the World Health Organization or WHO to establish a health-related subset of the Belt and Road Initiative, China's global infrastructure building project, to which the WHO was the first UN body to sign up. The Belt and Road idea and all associated Silk Road branded schemes are closely linked with Mr. Xi. Their content is vague. No clear definition has been offered, for example, of a health silk road, but the intent is clear: to portray China as fundamentally benign. The roads span the globe, but all lead back to China. In his discussions with world leaders about COVID-related aid, Mr. Xi likes to use another of his favorite expressions: building a community with a shared future for mankind. It sounds harmless enough, but central to this idea is a principle that China holds dear, namely that of respecting other countries regardless of their political systems. Various formulations of this have been used since the days of Mao Zedong, 
Mao's favoured term, the five principles of peaceful coexistence, remains in use. It means that other countries should swallow any misgivings about the way China is ruled and show it respect. On March 26th, at an online meeting of G20 leaders, Mr Xi prefaced his offer to share China's experience of fighting the disease and cooperate in the search for a vaccine by emphasising China's commitment to the notion of a community with a shared future for mankind. The urgency and importance of creating such a community have become even more evident during the pandemic, he told the president of Kazakhstan, Kasim Zhomat Tokayev, two days earlier. Some commentators in China say the country's medical aid could help to strengthen China's attractive soft power as opposed to the hard kind involving military and economic might. Building such power has been one of the party's goals since a party congress in 2007. Mr Xi has devoted particular attention to it, beefing up projects such as Confucius Institutes and global broadcasting ventures that aim to convey sanitised news about China to Western audiences, delivered in a disarmingly Western style. During the pandemic, China's state media, as well as the country's diplomats, have been using Twitter and Facebook, which are blocked in China itself, to promote China's charitable efforts. Experts say that thousands of the Twitter accounts used for this are sock puppet ones, set up to spread disinformation. The propaganda campaign has been helped by America's virtual absence from the world stage during the pandemic, in part because of Mr Trump's lack of interest in global leadership and in part because of the damage caused by COVID-19 at home. America has even found itself in the embarrassing position of clawing back aid it was meant to give. In March, its Agency for International Development, USAID, which played a crucial role in helping African countries contain Ebola in 2014-16, began cancelling shipments of medical supplies abroad because they were needed in America. And as the Trump administration and American governors and hospitals scour the world for masks, gowns and the like, they are infuriating allies who need the same things. Early this month, officials in France and Germany accused America of diverting shipments of medical masks that had been intended for use in their countries. Officials in Washington have denied the reports, but they reinforce the view held in much of the world that America is looking out only for itself. Mr Trump's decision on April 14th to suspend his country's payments to the WHO because of its handling of the pandemic will strengthen this belief, even though many Western officials sympathise with his view that the WHO failed to challenge China's early claims about the low risk of transmission among humans. However, winning hearts and minds is not proving easy for China either – it does not help that for all its propaganda about Chinese generosity, the value of China's donations is far eclipsed by that of its sales of medical kit, occasionally of low quality, buyers allege, on commercial terms. Between March 1st and April 4th, China exported $1.45 billion of medical supplies globally. Most of the sales to the rich world have been at market prices – by the time the train arrived in Madrid, 
Spain had already bought similar equipment from Chinese suppliers worth about 10,000 times as much as the stuff sent by rail. It may be that China has not worked out an aid strategy with a clear sense of which countries to target as a priority and how much should be given away free. Indeed, it has been happy to let companies, both state owned and private, do much of the work. Some of the country's largest firms have taken up the challenge, but they are relative newcomers to philanthropy. They also have commercial interests at stake in many of the recipient countries. Jack Ma, the billionaire co founder of Alibaba, an e commerce giant, has been at the forefront. Along with Alibaba's charitable foundation, he has sent plane loads of ventilators, protective kit, and COVID 19 tests for distribution to all 54 African countries. Huawei, a telecoms firm treated by America as a threat to its security, has already delivered a large share of its pledge of 500,000 masks, 50,000 goggles, 30,000 gowns, and 120,000 gloves to hospitals in New York. The company has also donated millions of masks to countries that are pondering whether to allow Huawei into their 5G networks, including Canada and the Netherlands. In parts of Europe, China's aid may have won admirers. A large billboard thanking Big Brother Xi, paid for by a pro government Serbian tabloid, appeared in Serbia's capital Belgrade. Lucrezia Poggetti of Merix, a think tank in Berlin, says public discontent with the EU and distrust of Mr. Trump's America has worked in China's favour. This month, a poll commissioned by an Italian television station asked people which country they would prefer as an ally outside Europe. Of 800 respondents, 36% favoured China and only 30% chose America. But to many in the West, China's propaganda drive sounds cynical, exploitative, and forgetful of the aid that the West gave China at its time of need. In early February, America and Europe sent 30 tons of medical supplies, much of it privately donated. President Emmanuel Macron of France complained that people talk of Chinese and Russian aid to Europe, but no one talks about France and Germany delivering two million masks and tens of thousands of medical gowns to Italy, he said. The EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, warned about the politics of generosity. In poor countries, China's charity may prove more effective. In Africa, the shipments are urgently needed, a point that China's extensive media network on the continent is keen to highlight. News outlets across Africa use stories from Xinhua, China's state news agency. But America is still a far bigger donor on the continent and to the UN. Last year, China gave $368 million to the UN's general budget, 55% of America's contribution. China's image has taken a severe hit in Africa as a result of the recent evictions of some Africans from their residences in the southern Chinese city of Gangzhou after reports that a few of them had been infected by COVID 19. Images of Africans forced to sleep on the streets have been widely shared by social media in their native countries. The Daily Nation, a Kenyan newspaper, accused China of betrayal. 
Several Chinese envoys in Africa have been summoned for dressings down by host governments. China says it will gradually lift health-related restrictions on Africans in Guangzhou and denies discrimination. Among developing countries, China is as likely, if not more so, to win support by providing economic help as it is by giving medical aid. In Africa, China is the largest bilateral creditor, having lent more than $140 billion since 2000. On April 6, Ken Ofori Atta, Ghana's finance minister, said China should come on stronger by restructuring or writing off some loans, which he said would require $8 billion to service this year. The World Bank and the IMF have proposed that creditors coordinate to provide debt relief. On April 15th, the G20, which includes China, agreed to allow developing countries to suspend debt payments to its members for the rest of the year. But when it comes to restructuring loans, China may prefer to go it alone rather than work closely with other lenders. In recent years, it has been willing to change the terms of its debts. For instance, last year, those owed by the Republic of Congo. But it likes to act quietly, case by case. That way, it can maintain the political leverage that its lending provides. Last year, China reportedly cancelled $78 million owed by Cameroon. A month later, Cameroon withdrew its candidate and the African Union's choice for Director General of the Food and Agriculture Organization, a UN body, clearing the way for China's candidate to get the job. Some Western critics call this a quid pro quo. During the pandemic. China has shown readiness to shake its fists as well as woo countries with kindness. Its deployment of sharp power, as some call it, has been evident in its response to suggestions that China may have exacerbated the pandemic with its early cover-up. Chinese embassies in several countries have sputtered with outrage when prominent personalities, from the son of Brazil's president Jair Bolsonaro to Mario Vargas Llosa, a Peruvian author, have aired such a heretical thought. China's embassy in Lima accused Mr. Vargas Llosa of making absurd and baseless criticisms of China in a column blaming the initial cover-up on China's dictatorial system. Some Chinese diplomats have even reacted with fury when people point out that the virus originated in China. Chinese leaders do not offer a clear blueprint for shaping the global order, but back in 2017, Mr. Xi gave a hint of China's long game when he proclaimed that it had taken a driving seat in international affairs and would be moving closer to center stage and making greater contributions to mankind. This does not appear to involve converting countries to Chinese-style socialism. China's aims are often self-defensive to protect itself from criticism and challenges to its territorial claims. When Bruce Aylward, an adviser to the WHO, pretended not to hear a reporter's question about Taiwan, China's media were delighted. However, China does try to persuade others to adopt its peculiar view of human rights. It discounts individual freedoms, gives priority to economic development, and thinks governments should police the internet as they wish.
Whether China will be able to take advantage of the pandemic to strengthen its global power will depend not least on the politics and economies of China and America post-COVID. By stoking its economic growth following the global financial crisis of 2007-9, China gained much clout while the West slumped. It may not be able to replicate that effect this time. Another massive dose of stimulus could cripple the country with debt. China is wary of repeating the tactic. As the world emerges from the crisis, the West's attention is likely to become more focused on China's early handling of the outbreak, the reliability of its COVID-related data, and on Western vulnerability to China's control of vital supply chains, not least in medical industries. Such issues could fuel anxieties about China's global influence and make it harder for China to shape the world to its liking. Should he win America's presidential election in November, Joe Biden may reassert a liberal vision of the world order, including support for multilateral institutions and regional alliances that have been disparaged and neglected by Mr. Trump. And China may stumble. Another wave of infections could undermine the party's claims to superior handling of the disease. Soaring unemployment could exacerbate social tensions at home and deter China's leaders from engaging in a triumphalist march abroad. For now, as America flounders, China appears a diffident leader at best. Its hesitancy was on display at the UN last month, when it was China's turn to act as president of the Security Council. Throughout the month, it did not convene a single session about the pandemic. On April 9th, the council did hold one, but China insisted that the meeting, held by video conference, be closed to the public. Envoys to the UN say China did not want to give America a chance to assign blame for the pandemic. It's irresponsible, says a Security Council diplomat. Instead, two die-hard rivals refuse to lead. One is in retreat, the other is uncertain whether it really wants to take on global responsibility. The world suffers. China Chagwan China's self-censoring nationalists once lionized, a chronicler of Wuhan's virus lockdown faces fury for sharing her story with the West. Clumsy despots use fear and coercion to keep foreign ideas at bay. Smart regimes know that nationalism is a more subtle tool. Bring a society to the right pitch of rage against foreign rivals and people will scorn outside influences of their own accord. Something like that is happening in China, four months into the outbreak of COVID-19. In early February, it was easy to find Chinese livid about cover-ups by their government. Now, it is not hard to find the opposite. Chinese seething with resentment against Western criticism and expressing pride as their country carefully reopens while death rates soar in the rest of the world. Propaganda chiefs pound home the lesson to be drawn. Because Western governments botched their virus control work, they are looking to demonize and scapegoat China. To be sure, Chinese public opinion is not monolithic, and it is hard to judge the true popularity of nationalism 
in a country that censors other expressions of anger. But a defensive, intolerant tone now marks too many Chinese discussions of this global pandemic. Consider the fate of Fang Fang, a writer who spent February and March being lionized by millions of Chinese for publishing online diaries of a rare candor about life under quarantine in Wuhan, her hometown, and the city where COVID-19 was first detected. Supporters hastened to copy and share each new posting before it was deleted by censors. Fans praised the authenticity of Fang Fang's accounts of life under lockdown, as she shared grim anecdotes sent to her by doctors, mourned friends and neighbors, and demanded accountability from officials. Fang Fang, the pen name of Wang Fang, a 64-year-old author of prize-winning works of bleakly realist fiction, boldly asserted personal claims to speak with authority as an eyewitness to Wuhan's horrors and as a survivor of dark chapters in history. A notable clash was sparked by an open letter, purportedly from a 16-year-old boy, who scolded her for airing China's shameful business. Recalling the Cultural Revolution, when young Maoist zealots denounced, beat and killed their elders, she chided him, When I was sixteen, life was much harder than yours, adding that he would one day shake off the poison filling his brain. Many of her roughly four million followers on social media cheered. Then news broke that Fang Fang's quarantine diaries would be translated and published in America and Germany this summer. Back home, the shift in opinion was brutal. The social media hashtag Fang Fang's Diaries has received 550 million views and 194,000 comments. Recent posts are overwhelmingly hostile. Netizens have been challenging her moral authority, lobbying the revealing insult, Ni Bu Pei, or You Are Not Qualified. Though Fang Fang has pledged to give away her book royalties, she is charged with seeking fame at the expense of the dead, eating buns made with human blood, as some have put it, borrowing an image from Lu Xuin, China's greatest 20th century literary moralist. China's tightly censored internet is unusually exhausting just now, filled with the din of performative patriotism and rows about who has a right to be heard. A self-declared ex-fan of Fang Fang's, claiming to be a surgeon from Hubei, the province of which Wuhan is the capital, fumed that she had handed a sword to China's enemies. The surgeon said history, as written by the Chinese people, would judge her harshly. His post earned more than 118,000 likes. Various conspiracy theories have cast the diarist as a mercenary. Her links to the China Writers Association, a semi-official body, have led to accusations that she is betraying her country while on the public payroll. The Global Times, a Communist Party newspaper, cites an unnamed whistleblower who alleges that she owns five villas. Fang Fang denies any illicit wealth and says she will sue her accusers. State media have noted netizens' suspicions that her work was translated so quickly that, in their view, foreigners surely commissioned her to write an anti-China screed. Fang Fang retorts that she began writing with no plans for a book 
and learned only later that her work was being translated. A larger shift in opinion lurks behind this assault on a diarist's credibility. Fang Fang's cooperation with Western publishers sparks rage because the perceived moral standing of the West, starting with President Donald Trump's America, is in freefall. When a candid Chinese writer is embraced by foreigners, the motives of all involved are assumed to be suspicious. In China, the most benign interpretation put on Fang Fang's actions is ignorance. Chairman Rabbit, a well-connected Harvard-educated blogger with 1.5 million followers, wrote recently that Fang Fang comes from a generation that naively idealizes the West, so fails to see how she is serving the anti-China industry. He contrasted the diarist with his own generation, who, in his telling, have the worldly confidence to compare the West and China objectively. Chairman Rabbit's real name is Ran Yi. He is the 40-year-old grandson of Ran Zhongyi, a reformer who served as party secretary of Guangdong province in the 1980s. Over coffee in Beijing, Mr. Ran, his pen name comes from childhood pets, calls COVID-19 a historic turning point. Chinese now see America's systemic weaknesses, he declares. Chinese students are trying to escape the US and the UK to make it back to China. They are confident in this government. He charges that Westerners have embraced Fang Fang because she criticizes China's government and predicts that her voice may have a disproportionate impact on global views of China's response to the virus. That upsets many Chinese because China feels so alone in the world and has no voice, he says. Outsiders may scoff at the idea of swaggering assertive China as a voiceless underdog, but Chinese public discourse is dominated currently by a mix of national pride and resentment of a West that is widely assumed to be acting in bad faith. In their millions, netizens are demanding less freedom of speech if a compatriot's candor helps the West. It is an autocrat's dream. United States The Economist, April 18th to April 24th, 2020. In the United States section, Coronavirus and Inequality, Unequal Protection, Revolution Interrupted, Democrats in Array, Lexington, On the Paradox of the Pandemic, and more. United States Coronavirus and Inequality Unequal Protection America is a country of yawning gaps. COVID-19 seems to be widening them. The COVID-19 epidemic in America is two-pronged. A contagious sickness first, followed by an economic malaise. Despite a big stimulus programme from Congress, including the temporary introduction of something like a universal basic income that ought to benefit the poorest disproportionately, it is the least advantaged who are suffering most. 
The country is now in the unenviable position of having more COVID-19 cases, 638,000 confirmed, and deaths, 31,000, than any other in the world. At least 17 million people, or more than one-tenth of the civilian workforce, have filed for unemployment benefits in the past three weeks. The official tabulations on what is happening will arrive weeks and months from now, but the best available evidence shows that the already yawning divides in American society are widening. Roughly one in three deaths in America thus far has been in New York City. The brunt of the disease has not fallen evenly there. Data released by the city's health department on April 6th show that black and Hispanic residents are twice as likely to die of the disease as white city dwellers. That trend has not been confined to America's largest city. In the few states and cities that have released similar breakdowns of fatalities, an uncomfortable pattern emerges from Milwaukee to New Orleans. Black Chicagoans are five times as likely to die of COVID-19 than white ones. Exactly why this is happening is still an open question. There are elevated rates among African Americans of chronic conditions such as high blood pressure and diabetes, which are thought to increase the chance of death. Poverty and its attendant consequences may also be at play. Blacks, and especially Hispanics, are less likely to have health insurance and may thus avoid seeking testing and treatment. Despite the large differences in mortality, the Economist's analysis of zip code level data in New York City shows that neighbourhoods with large black and Hispanic populations only have marginally more testing. Without space to self-isolate, a private car and a job that can be performed remotely, the chances of infection necessarily increase. A team of biostatistics researchers at Harvard have pointed out that there is an alarming correlation between long-term exposure to fine particulate matter, which damages lungs, and county-level death rates from COVID-19, a respiratory illness. An increase of merely one microgram per cubic metre is associated with a 15% increase in COVID-19 fatalities. In America, black residents are disproportionately exposed to fine particulate matter. Even after accounting for population density, air pollution and pre-existing health factors like smoking rates and obesity levels, the same analysis shows that race is tied to COVID-19 deaths nationwide. For every one standard deviation increase in the share of Hispanic and black residents, county death rates increase by 16% and 52% respectively. It is also uncertain whether this racial disparity would dissipate if the virus spread beyond big cities and into rural parts of the country. If poverty, pollution and pre-existing conditions and patchy health and social safety nets are leading to excess deaths among minority residents in American cities, then they will apply with no less force to poor whites outside them. Adherence to social distancing guidance also seems to differ by income and party affiliation. A recent study by a team of researchers armed with cell phone location data found that compliance with the new behavioural guidelines was substantially lower in countries with lower incomes, greater exposure to recent trade wars and higher rates of support for Mr Trump. The few governors who have not recommended shelter-in-place orders as of April 14th are of all Republican-led largely rural states like Arkansas and South Dakota, where over 500 workers in a pork processing plant recently tested positive for the virus. Although the uneven health effects of the pandemic are still being worked out, there is little doubt already about where the economic effects have been most severe. 
Official unemployment numbers are tabulated every month and have not yet incorporated the worst weeks of the economic downturn. When they catch up, the Peterson Institute for International Economics, a think tank, reckons that they will show an unemployment rate of 20% by early summer, a number not seen since the Great Depression. A survey of 4,000 American workers conducted by a team of European economists found that 16.4% had already lost their job because of the viral shock. For the 20% of American workers least able to work from home, nearly 40% have lost their jobs, according to the survey results. Workers who are younger, poorer or lack a university education have disproportionately lost their source of income. For some, that has also meant losing their employer-sponsored health insurance in the middle of an epidemic. The negative effect of these job losses on low-income and precariously employed Americans ripples through their families. Elizabeth Ananat, an economist at Barnard College, and Anna Gassman Pines, a professor of public policy at Duke University, spent months recruiting hourly service sector workers with young children in a big American city to study the effect of a new law limiting short-notice schedule changes. In the middle of their survey, the coronavirus hit, ruining their intended study but providing valuable detailed information about how relatively low-paid workers in hotels and restaurants are dealing with the crisis. Of their sample, 43% had lost their jobs, half of them permanently. Of those, 23% also lost their health insurance. Measures of parental and child mental distress also shot up. In theory, the safety net should cushion these effects. Compared with those of other rich countries... America's is less generous for fear of discouraging work. But now that swathes of the economy are closed off for the good of public health, these worries look less important. In its recent $2.2 trillion spending bill, Congress temporarily reinforced the safety net, including a $600 weekly top-up on unemployment benefits, a $1,200 check for most American adults and a $350 billion bailout fund for small businesses on the brink of closing. Sensible as this seems, the time before firms and families actually benefit may be quite long. State unemployment offices are contending with extreme levels of claims and antiquated technology. The Governor of New Jersey put out a call to programmers fluent in COBOL, a programming language created in 1959, to help fix its office's back-end software. Of the unemployed service workers in Ms. Ananats and Ms. Gassman Pine's sample, only 46% had successfully applied for benefits. Only 4% have actually received them. And while the IRS is expected to start depositing checks soon, those without a previous tax filing or a bank account, who presumably need the cash most, will have to wait longer. The rollout of the small business bailout scheme has been bumpy too, with owners reporting unclear guidance and considerable paperwork. A nationwide survey of small businesses, conducted by a team of economists, found that 43% of companies had closed temporarily, shedding 40% of their employees. Assessing the long-run effect of the last economic downturn on children, some of America's leading scholars on poverty concluded, the near immunity of college-educated families and the large negative consequences for less-educated families means that the Great Recession increased the already large divide between families at the top and bottom of the income distribution. There is little reason to doubt that the same dynamic will reappear this time. 
United States. Violence and the virus. Ceasefire for now. Could a pandemic-induced slump in crime be prolonged? For years, activists, police, and others hoping to reduce gun violence in cities have asked if creating a temporary firebreak, a way to pause tit-for-tat killings, could help in the long term. In troubled neighborhoods in Chicago, for example, interrupters, who are often former gangsters themselves, have tried dissuading young gunmen from seeking revenge immediately after a shooting. The idea is to let hotheads cool. So, preventing a cycle of deadly feuding. Courtesy of COVID-19, a chance might now exist to test the firebreak idea. Stay-at-home orders are keeping many potential perpetrators and victims off the streets. That has led to a remarkable fall in violence, including murders, rapes, robberies, and assault. Data on crimes recorded by a dozen cities' police departments, collected this week for the Economist by Christopher Herman at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, show a deep slump in the 28-day period to early April from a year earlier. In some New York neighborhoods, he says, crime is down by two thirds. The reductions are widespread, if not entirely unexpected. Mr. Herman used to analyze crime statistics for New York's police department. He notes periods of heavy snowfall or big storms can also keep people indoors and cause dips in crime. Temporary closures of subway stations can do the same at a local level. Warm weather or school holidays that send more youngsters onto the streets tend to drive rates up. The last pandemic in America, the Spanish flu of 1918. Also seem to have an effect. Lee Bynan, who runs a project tracking homicides in Chicago since 1870, notes that 130 people were shot dead there in 1918, a noticeable drop from 159 the year before. Gun killings then rose fast as the pandemic petered out. The scale of the crime downturn now is unprecedented, says Mr. Herman. Cities are seeing sharp falls, even as police patrol less, as they too fall sick with COVID-19. And unlike a storm, the lockdown in most places has already lasted for weeks. Were that to extend to three months, says a crime analyst in Chicago, some young guns might change habits. An older man who was imprisoned for murder agrees that a long enough hiatus could help. Being locked down, he says, is a moment to breathe, stop, think. There's something to be said for that in the chaos. Could the pandemic-induced firebreak have a longer-lasting effect, where shootings are mostly by gangs fighting over control of drug sales? Say, a quick return to old levels of violence could be expected, but police in Chicago, at least, liken some shootings to a game of tag played with firearms. Young, ill-educated teenagers with too easy access to guns fall into feuding almost as a deadly sport. Some grudges are then held for years and are even passed between generations. Those involved in such shootings could be the most susceptible to change. A group called Ready, run by Eddie Bocanegra in Chicago, has for the past twenty months been giving frequent sessions of behavioural therapy and counselling to seven hundred young men judged likeliest to perpetrate the next killings 
or be the next victims. Mr Bocanegra's team works on despite the pandemic, though phone and video sessions have replaced personal meetings. He believes some cycles of violence are being broken. Still, the idea of a firebreak bringing benefits after de facto curfews are lifted does not convince everyone. Lockdowns do generally seem to reduce crime in public, but they can also result in more violence indoors. It is likely that domestic abuse is becoming more common. In Houston, cases of assault leapt in March, mostly because of attacks within the home. And another crime analyst in Chicago says being exposed to abuse at home is a strong predictor that someone will get involved in other violence later. Nor can anyone be sure how other pandemic-related changes underway will affect longer-term crime rates. Early releases of prisoners, police making fewer arrests, an 85% surge in national gun sales in March and record increases in unemployment could all return crime to levels seen before the lockdowns. Trying to make use of the firebreak makes sense, but keeping crime lower will prove difficult indeed. United States Revolution interrupted. Democrats in array. Bernie Sanders endorses Joe Biden. One of the reasons why Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump was that around a quarter of her Democratic rivals' voters spurned her. Most of Bernie Sanders's disaffected supporters voted for third-party no-hopers or Mr Trump in 2016. Some stayed at home. In an election settled by tiny margins, a few tens of thousands of votes in three Rust Belt states where Mr Sanders was popular, it is tempting to wonder what might have happened had he tried a good deal harder to reconcile his supporters to Mrs Clinton than he did. Having again failed to secure the Democratic ticket, Mr Sanders has sought to forestall a rerun of this scenario. In 2016, he stumped on until he had no mathematical chance of victory. He did not endorse Mrs Clinton until the eve of the party's convention in July. This time around, he did not wait. On April 13th, days after ending his campaign, he endorsed Joe Biden while appearing on a live stream broadcast with him. We need you in the White House, he told the former vice president. This completes an astonishing turnabout for both men. Only six weeks ago, or until the votes started coming in from South Carolina, the socialist from Vermont was leading a querulous pack. Mr Biden was flailing, and the prospects of the primary being decided before this year's convention seemed remote. Now Mr Biden is the presumptive nominee after what has turned out to be the shortest Democratic primary since 2004. The party appears to be unified. Elizabeth Warren, the other tribune of the left, also endorsed Mr Biden this week. So did Barack Obama in a speech that included almost as much praise for Mr Sanders, an American original, as Mr Biden. And because of the pandemic, there may be no convention. The virus is also behind Mr Sanders's timely concession. Mr Trump's response to it having renewed Democrats' dread of disunity and another defeat to him. That is not something Mr Sanders, who at 78 will almost certainly not run again, 
would want to be laid on him. His endorsement, he told Mr Biden, was intended to help him beat the most dangerous president in the modern history of this country. Mr Biden also deserves some credit. The former vice president is a poor campaigner, always verbose and now increasingly doddery, who will keep Democrats' hearts in their mouths to the end. Yet he has a gift for being liked, to which even ornery Mr Sanders is susceptible. He resented Mrs Clinton, yet calls Mr Biden a friend. The former vice president's political skills are correspondingly far silkier and more effective at building consensus than Mrs Clinton's were. That is apparent in the show he is now making of deferring to Mr Sanders on aspects of policy. Mr Biden welcomed Mr Sanders's support by saying he needed him, not just to win the campaign, but to govern. He also credited him with leading the Democratic drive for a $15 federal minimum wage, which Mr Biden supports. The two men say they would set up joint policy task forces. This will presumably result in some sops to Sandinistas in the forthcoming Democratic platform, perhaps on energy or education or policy. That looks like sensible party management. It does not represent a big concession to the left. Party platforms rarely come to much, and though Mr Biden is running on more left-wing promises than Mrs Clinton, especially on healthcare and climate change policy, he was the most unambiguously moderate contender in the primary and far to the right of Mr Sanders. Though Democrats have generally moved to the left, most do not consider Mr Sanders's statist vision credible, even where desirable. That is one of the two main reasons why he lost. The angry response his concession drew from die-hard Sandinistas illustrated the other one. I don't endorse Joe Biden, announced the senator's former press secretary, Brianna Joy Gray, to her quarter of a million Twitter followers. Notwithstanding his well-judged climb-down, Mr Sanders, an independent who has never joined the Democratic Party, has encouraged that insurgent spirit. I've got news for the Democratic establishment – they can't stop us, he tweeted in Nevada after what would prove to be the high point of his campaign. He was probably right, but ordinary Democratic voters, who mostly like their party and don't want to see it threatened, could and did. Their drift to the left mirrors a course already taken by their right-wing opponents. Yet Democratic primary voters remain less angry, suspicious of authority and unwilling to compromise than Republicans are. That is why Mr Sanders's effort to launch a Democratic Tea Party fell flat. For all the heat and light he has generated over the past five years, this is not a great record. Mr Sanders has not converted Democrats to his pet causes, including, above all, Medicare for All. He has not swollen the party's vote by bringing in a promised horde of young and working-class voters. He has not expanded its hard-left faction representing around a third of the party, from which he drew his support. His more modest achievement is to have focused and energised that base on a set of issues, vigorously championed by the activist leaders he has inspired. In an interview with the New York Times this week, the most prominent, Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, sounded almost as reconciled to Mr Biden's victory as Mr Sanders. She said she would support him, though knew she could not change him. There are limits to what Biden will do, and that's understandable, 
he didn't run as a progressive candidate. She also signalled how temporary this truce will be. The hard left does not feel beaten. It never will. Yet with Mr Trump in its sights, it seems to be making its peace with Mr Biden in a way it never did with Mrs Clinton. That is excellent for Democrats and potentially awful for the president. United States Military recruitment Social climbing The grunts are not what they used to be. For poor blacks and poor whites, there was simply nothing like the army, wrote Charles Moskos, a military sociologist in 1986, over a decade on from the abolition of the draft. The stereotypical grunt was proletarian cannon fodder, an unskilled young man from the impoverished boondocks or inner city, driven to the recruiting office by desperation and the promise of self-betterment. Take a look at the Marines. What you see is black faces from the ghettos, said Noam Chomsky in 1989. Sometime in the 70s, the American army shifted to a traditional mercenary army of the poor. If there was once some truth to that, it is now a myth, according to a new paper published in the Journal of Strategic Studies. Its authors compared data from the National Longitudinal Surveys of Youth from 1979 those born between 1957 and 1964, and 1997, born 1980-84, to 84, which involved thousands of subjects interviewed regularly year after year. In the first cohort, who came of age in the aftermath of Vietnam, those who enlisted did indeed have lower parental income and wealth than equivalent civilians. But for the millennial soldiers... Reared in an age of American swagger, the opposite is true. Their median family income is more than $73,000, compared with $66,000 for civilians, and recruits are most likely to come from families in the middle of the wealth distribution, with median wealth of $87,000, almost $10,000 more than civilians. Blacks, overrepresented among the poor and a disproportionately large veteran presence in the 1979 cohort, as Chomsky noted, have dwindled as a share of recruits. Separately, as the armed forces shrank in size and grew choosier, recruits tended to be cleverer, measured by a cognitive skills test, than their civilian peers. Indeed, among the poorest recruits, it is the cleverest, not the dropouts or deadbeats, who are likeliest to sign up. In short, soldiering has become a middle-income business. The widespread belief among academics, the American public and lawmakers, that those fighting America's wars come mostly from the poorest group is probably a product of trends from the past, conclude the authors, who note that their findings are robust across the Army, Navy, Air Force and Marines, and apply to officers and enlisted personnel alike. Since the strongest correlate of enlistment is proximity to a military base, these trends may reflect recruitment from the upwardly mobile offspring of serving personnel and their communities, says Corey Sharkey of the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank. Technology plays a role too, say the authors. 
modern warfare relies less on hordes of expendable infantry and more on sophisticated platforms. Today's military personnel include cyber attackers, satellite controllers and software engineers. As America's enemies have acquired better arms of their own, tactics have also grown more complex and demanding. All of that requires skill. This military gentrification has political consequences. Some political scientists once reckoned that elites might be happier to wage war if a disenfranchised underclass would bear the brunt. In fact, the data show that men and women who serve are likely to embody the values and culture of the median voters. But if the armed forces skim off the better educated and better skilled, they may no longer serve as the vehicles of upward social mobility they once were. The very poorest Americans may be spared foreign battlefields, but they may also be spared college degrees. United States Lexington The Paradox of the Pandemic The coronavirus is bringing Americans together locally, even as it exposes their divisions. The fact that British and American politics have been heading in the same direction in recent years, towards populism and rancor, makes their sudden divergence all the more striking. Boris Johnson, fresh out of intensive care, is preaching his country's secular faith, love for the National Health Service, and seeing his ratings soar. Indeed, almost every Western leader, including Giuseppe Conte, Emmanuel Macron, and Angela Merkel, has received similar or bigger double-digit boosts as their voters rally around the flag in this time of peril. America is a different case. After a small jump in the first weeks of the crisis, Donald Trump's ratings are back to their pre-pandemic lows. Most Republicans are with him, most others loathe him, and his handling of the coronavirus is viewed accordingly. Squinting past his vacillation and incompetence, the president's supporters say he is doing well. Almost everyone else disagrees. The coronavirus has killed 31,000 Americans, but it has not broken their partisan spirit. This is hardly surprising. America was divided long before Mr. Trump launched himself on it as a human wedge. The exceptionally bitter 2000 presidential election, which both parties claim to have won, looks like a watershed moment, as perhaps the last decided by persuadable voters. Each subsequent poll has been won by whichever party did best at mobilising its supporters, or, to put that emotively, by whichever felt angriest on the day. Surveys point to Republicans and Democrats becoming increasingly unable to empathise and reluctant to socialise with one another. Even before Mr Trump made factionalism a governing strategy, it was hard to imagine a president wrapping his arms around his crisis-stricken country, as George W. Bush did after 9-11, and rallying it to him. And of all imaginable crises, the coronavirus has shown a unique power to accentuate political differences. Though more devastating than any foreign attack, it is hard to figure as the sort of common enemy Osama bin Laden was. Notwithstanding Mr. Trump's effort to give it a Chinese face, 
He reverted this week to calling it the Wuhan virus. It is spread by Americans. That has created an extra layer of suspicion, especially as Republicans, taking their cue from Mr. Trump, were slower to adopt social distancing. Yet the virus is mainly accentuating partisanship because Republicans and Democrats are experiencing it differently. At the time of writing, over half of America's 638,000 known infections were in New York and three neighbouring states, all solidly democratic. So is every other major hotspot, including Chicago, Detroit and New Orleans. Infectious diseases like density, which is one of the most reliable predictors of democratic support there is. More sparsely populated Republican areas have seen only scattered tragedies, typically in care homes, where almost a quarter of Texas's 391 deaths have occurred. This makes Republicans more receptive than Democrats to Mr. Trump's call for a reopening of the economy, an issue that, by pitting the certain tragedy of 17 million unemployed workers against the likelihood of additional infections, could scarcely be more polarizing. America's gravest political differences were already matters of life and death, and the pandemic has deepened them specifically. For Democrats, it has vindicated their overriding demand for better, cheaper health care. Republican states, including Texas and Ohio, have meanwhile used the lockdown to try to ban abortions, even as cultural warriors such as William Barr, the Attorney General, rail against its implications for religious liberty. The best explanation for the recent implacability of American partisanship is that many pre-existing, not necessarily partisan differences concerning race, region, expertise and so forth have become starkly aligned with partisan identity. COVID-19, a disease that disproportionately hurts urban-dwelling non-whites, and demands rigorously science-based action, has worked with the grain of that alignment. Yet these depressing facts are not the whole story. Even as their national politics has taken yet another downwards lurch, Americans are feeling much the same sense of solidarity as locked-down Asians or Europeans. A survey by More in Common, a group that studies polarisation, finds that almost half say America is more united than it was before the pandemic. The portion that believes it is very divided has dropped from 62% to 22%. Over 90% of Americans believe we're all in it together, compared with 63% before the virus hit. And though there remains partisan differences in how seriously Americans view the virus, they have narrowed a lot. Republicans and Democrats alike are afraid of it for the sake of their country as well as their family and communities. Despite the partisan squabbling, this suggests most people are quietly minimising their differences and pulling together. The main explanation for this apparent contradiction is that politics is local. In America's system, state and local governments are the front line against the pandemic and most state governors are duly enjoying the same ratings boosts as European prime ministers or presidents, even in fiercely contested states. Andy Bashir of Kentucky, 
a Democrat who was elected by a mere 5,000 votes last November, has an approval rating of 81%. The main exceptions are the governors most tied to national politics, such as Ron DeSantis of Florida, a Trump proxy with ratings to match. This suggests America is fundamentally the same country of concerned, good-hearted citizens it ever was. Even when its national politics is seized by demagogues, responsibility and accountability matter in everyday governance. The unhappier flip side is that this divergence helps explain why Americans can bear to put up with and thereby sustain such dreadful national politics. It plays a much smaller role in their lives than the apparent momentousness of its life-and-death issues might suggest. In the current catastrophe, that is a consolation, but it also stands in the way of the political renewal America so badly needs.